Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. We're looking at verses 1 to 29 this morning. And if we haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Eddie Pian, as Pastor Andrew introduced earlier. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at the church, and I also have the pleasure of serving here as ministry assistant. And if you're visiting with us this morning or you haven't been here, we're currently in a series entitled Five on Five, Genesis to Deuteronomy. We're looking at five lessons each on the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. And this morning, we're in our third lesson in the book of Genesis. And we are picking up right where we left off last week. And we saw Abraham in Genesis 18 intercede and, and plead with God on behalf of the city of Sodom, where his nephew Lot lived. Uh, and today we're going to see just what becomes of the city. Uh, our sermon this morning is entitled, A Lesson in Lot's Rescue. So if you're able, I invite you now to stand. Your standing is an act of worship as we receive God's own word together. So once again, that's Genesis 19, verses 1 to 29. Receive now God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. 
but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me as we pray and ask God for his help one more time? Our Father in heaven, how precious is your word. And how great a reality and a gift it is that you would stoop down and speak to us by it. Um, to lead us out of our darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, today we read of your anger and your wrath on sin. But we also see that you've provided a rescue and a way of escape. And so would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus in this story, who is our great rescue. Well, Lord, we pray and ask that by this word you would revive our souls, make us wise in our sinfulness, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes. Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today, for Jesus' sake. We pray and ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, dear friends, uh, it is a real honor to open up God's word to you this morning. I've been at the church for a little over a year now, um, and I can safely say that the last year has probably been one of the best for me. And that's in very large part thanks to you all. Um, I've been blessed um, more than I can adequately describe by just the welcome and the kindness and love and prayers that you all have been so generous to give. Um, and I'm thankful to the Lord for that. Um, it's also meant so much to me uh, and the other seminarians of the church to have your support and your patience as we prepare and train for ministry. So thank you all for your ministry to us and to me and to each other. Um, I do encourage you all to press on and continue in that work um, for each other and for um, everyone who enters the doors of this church um, because it shows people the love of Christ. Um, and so it's a great honor for me now to show you that same love of Christ here in God's word. Um, the passage before us this morning is a fairly well-known one, I think. It's also, for many people, quite a difficult one. I think that few stories in the Bible give us quite as vivid an image of God's wrath as this story does, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. If somebody were to ask you to give an example of God's wrath seen in the Bible, I imagine that many people would point to this exact story. 
Um, in, in the English language, the phrase fire and brimstone is virtually synonymous with God's wrath and anger and judgment. And that language actually comes directly from this passage, among others in the Old Testament, um, specifically the old King James version of it. Um, God's wrath is not a very popular or comfortable subject to talk about. If you've ever tried to evangelize to an unbeliever, chances are, at least if you're trying to be winsome about it, uh, you may have been somewhat hesitant to talk or at least dwell on God's wrath and found yourself focusing instead on God's love. Um, wrath is a bit harder to talk about. Um, in fact, some people go as far as to say that the God of wrath in the Old Testament and the God of love in the New Testament are so radically different that either God must have totally changed his mind about things in between, or even that they're not the same God. But both of those concepts are quite foreign, quite opposite to the Bible's own presentation of God, because the God of the Bible is both a God of love and a God of wrath. And there's no contradiction there. Let me, let me explain that. If you love something, you will hate whatever is antithetical to that thing which you love. If you love justice, then you will hate human trafficking. If you love children, then you will hate child abuse and child abusers. We're going to see that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah shows us that because God loves righteousness, he hates sin and he must deal with it. And so he pours out his wrath. But this passage also shows us that because God loves mercy, he has also provided a way of escape. And so the lesson we'll consider from our story today is this. Because God is holy, he pours out his wrath on sin, and his wrath demands a response to flee to safety or remain under judgment. What I want to do this morning is first to walk us through the story and just unpack what it tells us about God's wrath, um, those who deserve God's wrath, and the offer of rescue that God gives. And then I want, to take, I want us to take a look in the story at three different responses that people may have to God's wrath and this offer of rescue. Um, and I want us to see just what those different responses mean for us. To catch you up, in our sermon last week, we saw that God has heard an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's determined to go and see what's up so he can deal with the problem. Genesis 18, verses 20 to 21, God says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, this is not at all to say that God somehow didn't know what was actually going on in Sodom and Gomorrah as if he needed to somehow physically go down and confirm what he heard. No, God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. And what Moses, the author, is setting us up to understand here is that God is good and right and just in all of his judgments. He's never underinformed or hasty in coming to his judgments. There's never a piece of evidence that he hasn't given proper consideration. God never acts rashly or on a whim or out of uncontrolled emotion. Um, uncontrolled emotion specifically seems to be one way that people misunderstand the wrath of God, but all of it is measured and calculated. Um, God always observes due process. And that is why God says he will go down to see what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
We also saw last week that because of Abraham's intercession, that famous negotiation, um, God will spare the whole city if he can find just 10 righteous people in it. Well, we come to our passage now, and later that same day, uh, God does send his angels down to Sodom to investigate, and our story tells us what they find. The angels arrive in the city that evening, and we're told that they find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. If you're reading through Genesis, by the time you get to this story, um, it's been a little while since we last saw Lot. I'm in Genesis 12. Um, You may remember that Lot had been traveling with his uncle Abram as Abram followed God's call to go to the land of Canaan. Um, But in the next chapter, in Genesis 13, Lot parts ways with Abram to seek after his own prosperity. And eventually he settles near the city of Sodom and then in the city of Sodom. Well, it seems now like Lot's done very well for himself in Sodom. He's very well adjusted. And in fact, he's done more than well. You see, many times throughout the Old Testament, we read that sitting in the gate of a city was, it wasn't just a welcoming team. He is not a bouncer. He's not a security guard. No, sitting in the gate of the city was a position of authority. I mean, it was the seat of judgment over legal affairs and the affairs of the city. The city gate functioned kind of as a public square, and that was where the elders and the leaders of the city would have their public meetings and handle legal disputes. So we find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom, this sinful city, and that's a little little bit like being the president of the Alliance of Puppy Kickers. (laughs) Congratulations on your success. You are clearly esteemed by your community. I'll pass on that myself, but good for you. So Lot has not just made himself at home. I mean, this guy's practically the mayor of Sodom now. Or if not mayor, he's at least on the city council. Well, it turns out that Lot, when he sees his two visitors at the gate, wants to give his guests a good welcome, treat them to some good old Sodom hospitality. So he invites them to stay the night in his home. Um, They show a little resistance, but... Lot insists. You know, some of us are familiar with this little dance that we do, especially, I think, if you grew up in an Asian cultural environment. You know, somebody will offer you some kind of kindness. You know, please take this food, take this money, please stay at our place, please let me take the bill. Many of us are familiar with that. And then you say, no, I can't allow that. Please don't do that. Um, But they insist and say it's totally fine. And you go back and forth. And eventually someone gives in. Um, So that's a little dance. And uh, Actually, some of you know that I've been temporarily displaced in my own living situation the last few weeks. So if I seem a little extra knowledgeable, it's because I've just done this dance with some people here. Um, by the way, I am so thankful for everyone who's offered their help. Um, you guys are awesome. Uh, so grateful for that. Um, but anyway, that's much like what's going on here. And so the angels give in um, to Lot's insistence. They go into Lot's house and he treats them to a feast and they stay the night. Good host. But before they can even go to bed, there's a commotion outside the house. Trouble is at the door, verses four and five. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. We're given this striking image of the house being surrounded by this massive crowd of men. And the author here is clear to indicate that this is not just some gang. This is not just some band of criminals who go around the city causing trouble for everyone else. This is a whole city affair, or at least for the men. Everybody's here, both young and old, all the people to the last man, it says. 
You remember God said in the previous chapter to Abraham that he would spare the city if he found 10 righteous people. Well, prospects do not seem very good right now. You got the sense that really the whole city is united in, in this. The men say they want to know Lot's two visitors. And we know from the use of this word in the original Hebrew throughout the Old Testament that this word can refer not just to intellectual knowing, but also to sexual knowing. These guys are also not the city welcoming committee. Welcome to Sodom. Tell us about yourself. We'd love to get to know you. That's not that kind of knowing. These men want to have sexual relations with Lot's visitors. And so what does Lot do in the face of this ravenous mob? Well, ever the dedicated host, he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I think that for any of us here, what Lot does here is unthinkable. Here are all these men at the door violently demanding to know Lot's visitors. But because Lot is concerned above all with being a good host, keeping his good name, he offers his own daughters to the mob instead and says, have your way with them. You know, many of you have daughters, many of you are daughters. And so what Lot does here should make our blood boil. It certainly does for me. This is unthinkable cowardice. But fortunately enough for his daughters, you know, as, as awful as Lot's decision here may have been, the men have no interest in the daughters. Instead, they move to break down the door and say they're going to have their way with the two visitors and with Lot. Verse 9, the men say, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. You know, despite Lot's position of prominence in the city, remember sitting at the gate, the men haven't forgotten that Lot is still a foreign transplant, an outsider. He came from another land. It becomes clear now, at this point, just what the outcry against the city had been. This is a city marked by a culture, a habit of the very violence that this mob of men is trying to commit toward Lot's guests. As we saw last week, other parts in the Bible identify the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah under two main categories. The first is sexual sin. Jude 1.7 says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. You see that coming through in the men's rejection of Lot's daughters in favor of Lot's visitors. And the second is social sin. Ezekiel 16.49 says Sodom was prosperous but did not aid the poor and needy. It's because of these sins that the outcry has come up to God, come to his ears, and he's about to pour out his wrath on the city. You know, on one hand, it may be very easy for us to look at the sin of these men of Sodom and to feel very distant from it. And I would venture to guess that none of you are ever participating in mobs quite like this one. If you do, you can have a talk with Pastor Andrew. Um, and, but despite his position in the city, um, it's also clear that Lot has not taken part in this particular sin of the city. Um, in spite of the degree of his assimilation, Lot seems to have still remained conscious of his identity as a foreigner and still you know, one of Abraham's people. You know, I'm not from here. I'm doing well here. I'm not from here. Um, so Lot 
like us in one narrow sense, is not guilty of this particular sin that has brought the city under God's judgment. But as we just saw, Lot is also not exactly the paragon of righteousness either, right? And we see this on two counts. Um, first, um, even if he hasn't followed the people of Sodom in all of their sinful ways, he still has bought into the society and become part of it rather than um, remaining distinct from it. Remember, he pursued, he, the reason why he came to Sodom in the first place was seeking after material prosperity. And, you know, this place has allowed him to just let that desire flourish. And he's um, just become very established in that. Um, I'm not saying that Christians ought to disengage with the world. Um, if anything, I think Christians should engage even more with the world and show the world what it looks like to live counterculturally, right? We call this living uh, in the world, but not of the world. But what I am saying is that it was that pursuit of prosperity above all else that brought Lot here to Sodom and undoubtedly helped him climb the ladder. Um, so in that sense, he has become just as worldly as the people of Sodom surrounding him. And the second way that we see Lot's flaws is that he is just a little too willing to give up his own daughters to be violated, to give up on his fatherly duties, to just to preserve his own good name. Um, these things together uh, hardly sound like innocence to me. And if you're honest with yourself, um, although your own particular sins may not look quite like this particular sin of Sodom, you think of you think of sexual sin, social sin more generally. Who among us is actually innocent of those? Um, whether it's lust or various forms of sexual immorality, um, or whether it's failure to love your neighbor as you ought. Um, in the most important sense, we too are just as guilty as Sodom. Um, James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So even if you were somehow innocent of sexual or social sin, um, you and I and we all have failed to meet this standard. Um, it may be the case that you have never done anything really awful. You've never killed anyone. You've never stolen. Um, you've never, you know, violently, you know, hit someone in the face or anything. Um, you keep your records clean. You keep your relationships peaceful. You try to live a pretty moral life. And that's great, but it's not enough to free you from the guilt of sin, which James here reminds us so starkly. And in the eyes of the holy and righteous God, that means the outcry against our sin is also great. And like Sodom, we are equally deserving of God's wrath. But our passage doesn't end there. Praise the Lord, and so neither does our lesson. We're going to see in the remainder of our passage that while God rains down his wrath on sin, he also offers rescue. And we're shown here three different responses to that offer of rescue. First is the response of Lot's sons-in-law. As the men of the city are pressing in against the house, the angels intervene and prevent the men from coming in. 
And then they reveal to Lot God's intentions to pour out his wrath and destroy the city. Verses 12 and 13, they say, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The angels warn Lot that wrath is coming on the city, and so he needs to gather up anyone who will go and escape. And Lot takes this seriously. And so he goes to these two guys who are engaged to his daughters, and he tells them that they need to leave and that God is about to destroy this whole place. But how do these sons-in-law or sons-in-law-to-be respond? But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. You know, to these guys, the idea that some God that, you know, this guy's uncle, right, Abraham, believed in, was about to destroy the city when the sky was blue and all seemed normal and well, it was a joke. The idea that they would have to suddenly leave everything behind just because some God was angry was a joke. The idea that they would need to be saved from incoming disaster was a joke and not reality. But we know that this was not a joke. And so this is the first way that we see that people can respond to God's wrath and the offer of rescue from it. They consider it foolishness, superstition, and they laugh and they dismiss it. And they stay right where they are instead of going and escaping the coming wrath. You know, like a fox or a raccoon on the highway, you know, they stand in the way of trouble and they stay there by their own choice. I wonder if you are here this morning and you have not yet trusted Christ and perhaps for some reason or another the Christian faith and the reality of God's wrath on sinners have seemed like a joke to you, um, like it did to these sons-in-law, you know, something that you don't need to take seriously. But there is a final wrath coming when Jesus will come again to judge the sin of the world and it is very real and it's no joke. And so if this is you, I want you to know that the offer of salvation still stands for you, no matter how far gone you may be. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Dear friend, wrath is coming, but God has made the way of escape. So don't be like the sons-in-law and laugh, but take the offer while it still stands it will not stand forever. And if you are a believer, you know someone who has responded to God's offer of salvation this way, um, don't stop praying for them either. Don't stop praying for those who seem too far gone, too convinced that this whole thing is a joke, too unlikely to believe. They may, off they may accept the offer of salvation or they may reject it, but the offer still stands for them. So keep praying. We see a second way to respond to God's wrath and the offer of salvation, and that is the response of Lot's wife. And while God is raining down sulfur and fire from heaven, you know, sulfur, by the way, um, many commentators think that that's um, 
it represents lightning because lightning often leaves a, an odor of sulfur. So you imagine lightning and fire coming down from heaven and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we read in verse 26 that Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, that may confuse us initially, right? Like looking back and seeing the destruction may not seem like such a big deal. You know, if you know there's supernatural fire and lightning raining down from heaven on the place where you've called home for the last season of your life, like of course you're going to be curious. Um, but the angel had warned Lot and his family not to look back, but to run straight to safety without stopping. The Lord Jesus himself shed some light on why Lot's wife's looking back was such a problem. Luke 17, 33, Jesus gives that famous teaching, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. And what example does our Lord use to illustrate someone seeking to preserve their life and losing it? Remember Lot's wife. This look that Lot's wife took back at the city was not one merely out of curiosity at what was happening, but with longing for what they had left behind. Um, her offense was not just her look back. It wasn't the fact that she just you know, took a look at what was happening to the city, but her offense was the heart that that look represented. Friends, you cannot follow Jesus half-heartedly. You cannot be looking back. You must be all in. In 1 John 2, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, in a way, it's, it's almost silly, um, if you think about it, that Lot's wife would look back at the destroyed city with such longing, especially after she had just been delivered from all that destruction. There was nothing to go back to in that city, and still she looked back. And loving the things of the world is like that. You wouldn't purchase stock in a bankrupt company. You wouldn't put money on a sports team with injured players because it's a foregone conclusion. It's a lost cause. You know how the story ends even before it begins. And so in the same way, it would be foolishness to put all your energies, your hopes, and your joys in the things of this world because this world is passing away. The grass withers, the flower falls, Legacies will fade, names will be forgotten, belongings will decay, cities will crumble, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And like his word, his is a kingdom that will also last forever. So don't be half-hearted. Remember Lot's wife, follow Jesus, and don't look back. But finally, we see a third and better way to respond to God's wrath and the offer of salvation. And that is the response of Lot himself to acknowledge the danger and go. You know, Lot's initial response is shaky at best. The angels tell him it's time to go. And what does it say? He lingers. 
do I really have to leave all this behind? Could the coming wrath really be that bad? But the Lord has mercy on him. And so the angel grabs them by the hand and brings them out of the city. Friends, if you're a believer, is this not what the Lord did for you and for me? When you were running headlong in the wrong direction, when you were running straight off the cliff, the Lord being merciful to you, did he not grab you by the hand and pull you out of the way of danger and put you on the path of life? Praise God that he is merciful to you and to me and to all who will believe. So Lot and his family, after that sputtering start, go out from Sodom to the city where they were to take refuge. And as soon as they get to safety, as soon as the one whom God has offered, the, the, given the offer of salvation and has accepted, as soon as they get to safety, God's judgment rains down from heaven, sulfur and fire out of heaven. And God's judgment is not partial or incomplete on these wicked cities. As soon as Lot and his family have taken refuge, God pours out his wrath. The ax drops and nothing is left standing. Not the buildings, not the people, not the animals, the plants, even the land. It's made into a wasteland. And we're told the smoke goes up like the smoke of a furnace. It's a dump. The outcry that God had heard against Sodom and Gomorrah was true. And they were guilty. The cities got the wrath that was coming to them. And if, like these cities, you also have sinned, then you have also earned for yourself a similar fate. The New Testament describes hell as a place of torment more terrible than anything we can imagine. Here in this story on Sodom and Gomorrah, we saw fire and sulfur raining down from heaven. In the New Testament, we read that the torment that is brought on those who reject God will be a place of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, unextinguishable flame, separation from God forever. Why then was Lot saved? Why did his response, as shaky and confused as it was, lead him to be spared from this judgment? We know that God is right in all his judgments, and we saw in the last chapter that God is determined not to sweep the righteous away with the wicked. He will not punish the righteous for the sins of other wicked people. But then that must mean that Lot was righteous. Lot who lingered, right? Lot who was about to give up his daughters so the mob would have their way with them. And in fact, the New Testament affirms that for us. Second Peter 2 refers to Lot as righteous Lot, that righteous man with a righteous soul. How can that be? What is going on here? Was Lot secretly more righteous than the story would make us to think? You know, have I just been slandering the character of who was really a good man? Well, once again, I think that would be hard to say of someone who has failed in the ways that we have seen. Um, someone who had left Abraham and the promise in pursuit of wealth, and someone who would so callously betray his own daughters. Or perhaps even worse, does God just overlook all of Lot's failings and judge him righteous anyway? Does he just not care about Lot's sin? Is he willing to let evil go unpunished? No, God is not willing to let any evil go unpunished. 
And so we're told in verse 29 that God remembered Abraham. And what about Abraham did God remember? We read in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so sinful Lot, just like his sinful and flawed uncle Abraham, was counted as righteous in the same way. Even though he lingered, even though his faith was weak, even though he did not have the righteous conduct to meet that standard, he heard the warning of God's wrath, he believed, and he went. And for his faith, as weak as it was, he was counted by God as righteous, without fault. Several thousand years later, the Apostle Paul picks up on this being counted righteous by faith, and he writes these words. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his or Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, it is by faith that we are counted by that we are counted righteous, not by anything else, not by our good works. It is by faith. This is only possible because God, who must deal with every sin, who will not leave evil unpunished, who will not leave justice unanswered and unrighted, he has dealt with our sin just like he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah's sin by pouring out his wrath but instead of pouring out his wrath on you and me, he poured it out on another. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed twice. He pled with his father that the cup of wrath which was coming for him might be removed. He knew, he knew better than anyone how awful the father's wrath was. He knew that there could be nothing worse, no experience more excruciating, more harrowing, more terrifying, more final than bearing the full and fierce wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah was just a foretaste. And that is why Jesus prayed for the cup to be removed. But dear friends, we know that the cup was not removed. Earlier we sang those words, right? The cup was not removed, he drank it all. See him hanging there where I belong. Friends, Jesus, the perfect obedient son of God, went to a sinner's cross. He took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it down to the last drop so there would be none left over for you. And he not only took the cup, but he took it willingly out of his love for you. What a love. He did all this so you would be safe when that final judgment comes and God rids the world of every evil once and for all. Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you like Lot's sons-in-law who heard of the wrath to come, received the offer of salvation and rescue, and left? Or are you like Lot's wife who turned back, not trusting that this way was best? If this is you, then I ask you, beg you even, 
turn to Jesus and don't look back. It says in John 3.36, Whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Like a great weight around your neck or a great burden on your shoulders, the wrath of God remains on you and it is terrible. Are you like the sons-in-law or Lot's wife in your response to God's wrath? Then turn to Jesus. Believe and go. But if you, like Lot, have believed in the coming wrath and you have taken the way of escape and trusted in Christ, then your safety is guaranteed forever. How appropriate that we heard earlier in the assurance of pardon these words from 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That wrath is coming both upon those who have denied and rejected this, this offer of salvation and on every other evil that we see in the world around us as well. We see a lot of evil around us, certainly. A lot of evil done to us, a lot of evil done to others, sometimes even evil done by ourselves. But the Lord does not leave any evil unanswered, any sin unpunished. And so on that day of final judgment, that day when God makes every wrong right, those who have taken refuge in the sun will see and enjoy everything made right. So how have you responded? May we who have taken shelter in him rejoice in our great rescue as we wait for that day. Let's pray.